Hello everyone, welcome to Seeds Tech Tarik, a podcast where we talk about real tech in the world and what it holds in the future, especially in Malaysia. Hello, welcome to our episode 3 of Seeds Tech Tarik. Today, our topic is Bitcoin, Central Bank Digital Currency and the Future of Money. With me is Azim, who is currently working in World Bank and an alumnus from MIT. Well, that is a short introduction from me. Mind telling us more about yourself, Azim? Yeah, sure. Thanks, thanks, uh, Rafik. Thanks for the invitation. It's a real pleasure <laughs> to be part of this podcast. Uh, I, I need to just make a disclaimer first. For this is standard, right? Yeah, whatever I say does not represent, you know, what the World Bank believes. Whatever I say, <laughs> yeah. my view, or my view, and only yes. <laughs> With that said, I think I should be able to say whatever I want. So. Okay, so I mean, I've, I mean, I've been part of the IFC. So IFC, International Finance Corporation, is one of the five entities under the World Bank Group. So if you think of the IB, uh, the World Bank itself, as is known globally, it, the actual official name is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development (IBRD). And it was the first of the entities which was born out of the, Bre- I mean, out of Bretton Woods when Europe, especially, needed rebuilding after World War Two. France was actually the first country which got, you know, the loan. Interestingly, so you wouldn't imagine, you know, a country like France, but uh, to be a recipient of the loan. But yeah, they were the first. So I've been part of the IFC. IFC focuses specifically on the private sector, uh, you know, uh, capital market development of emerging economies. Uh, And I work in the market risk team. Uh, market risk, uh, in a sense, you're for the treasury portfolio. So you're covering, you know, interest rate, FX, uh, liquidity, uh, capital management. So, so that is the team that I'm working in. And um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really have anything to do with blockchain, of course. Uh, World Bank issued a bond on the blockchain. But the reason I suppose you guys are inviting me is because Yeah, I've been an enthusiast. I've been a reader, a bit reader of this space uh, for four years now. Uh, so as I was just studying Iman just now, I got interested because my professor at MIT, when I began my fall term there, it was my fourth, fifth month in for my master's. Yeah, he just asked the class how many people own Bitcoin. Like, you know, this was a class of like 300 people, about 10, 15%, you know, put up their hands. Having come from the UK at the time for my undergrad, I just thought, you know, okay, either there's something wrong with these people that you know i'm just a bit too skeptical to not even want to read on it and my professor what he really wanted was for us to read and get a view so so yeah that is uh, how i suppose my interest in this space began mm-hmm. all right thank you azim um maybe what, one of your hesitation because you came from the uk education background but no i'm kidding <laughs> um, so, a bit more um, rigid, you know, a bit more risk of a bit risk. So, I I guess well, Bitcoin is one type of cryptocurrency, and then you have a lot of other yeah. cryptocurrencies or yeah, blockchains yeah. such as you know Ethereum, Litecoin, etc. And now there have been talks about utilizing the cryptocurrency technology to to issue your own um, digital uh, digital currency. As a country, so I'm uh, maybe you can um, tell us a little bit from the perspective of banks, right? National banks or central banks. Mm-hmm. What is the the difference in having a, a normal currency and having a digital currency? How would that impact sure. things? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So when it comes to money creation, right? I mean, by by so central bank basically they control the money supply of an economy, and generally money has taken a few forms. You know, before money reached the current state of being fiat money, paper money, or yeah, the equivalent of paper money in digital form, before being part of a blockchain. Uh, yeah, money was as shells, whatever things that could sort of fulfill the few functions of money, right? Unit of account, transaction, medium, uh, store value, and and whatnot. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it didn't work very well. You had money, money tied to gold initially, so it wasn't fiat currency. It was actually money tied to some, you know, actual. Uh, assets that had value, that had universal value. But yeah, when Nixon put, I mean, took the US off the gold pack in the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken, or early 1970s, uh, fiat currency is basically yeah, just money backed by the faith and credit of a government, right? So, and uh, so it's, in, in that sense, central bank digital currencies are not that different because the truth is, uh, it is just another component of the overall money supply. If you think about the M0 money supply, you have coins, notes, bonds, uh, bills, right? And yeah, so CBDC, central bank digital currencies, will just be part of that. So there's a blockchain that is managed by the, the uh, central bank and whatnot, but yeah, it is still centralized. So it does not really fulfill what Nakamoto wanted in his uh, paper. But yeah, to, to answer the question specifically before we get to the other ideological, philosophical parts of it, uh, yeah, it, it has no real difference to whatever digital form of currencies we already have in banks now, in our bank accounts, right? We don't really need to see the physical money to be able to transact. And, and honestly, when central banks, theoretically, I mean, like, you know, what they say, printing money is not literally printing money, of course. So, they're just putting balances in bank reserves, buying government bonds, you know, they're already trading in the market. So, so you're adding money supply when there isn't a flow of money. Because when flow of money in banks is, is low, right? For example, 2008, liquidity risk showed up to the number one risk. People never really cared. But when the system froze up, people, you know, were queuing in droves to take out money. Uh, interbank lending uh, was stuck. So... In terms of printing money, it's really just government. I mean, central banks putting money in the reserves of uh, these, you know, conventional banks to be able to lend money so that mm -hmm. commerce happens, uh, interbank commerce happens. Yeah, I mean, retail commerce happens. So, does it mean when when a central bank wants to issue a digital currency, instead of uh, printing money and putting them in the reserves, they would essentially create or mint those digital money? and then send it to the banks instead of sending them the actual physical money for the bank to hold? Yes, yes, yes. So you can think of it instead of actually printing it on paper, you are creating mm -hmm. it. Uh, but as, yeah, I, I mean, the US is a bit of an anomaly for their ability to do quantitative easing to, to sort of, you know, money. Because, yeah, like, you know, countries, emerging economies, for example, like Malaysia cannot just do that, right? So, so yeah, what happens is... is mm -hmm. So what happens is, uh, then we get to what Friedman said, right? So Friedman, the father of monetary economics, said, you know, uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can only be produced by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than output. So you can think of a world where, okay, limited to just Malaysia, right, for example. 
whether okay and, and not even Malaysia a household and you have some fixed amount of money and you have some goods right in the end money is just a means towards buying something whether you have a billion bucks to buy one good or is just you know ten dollars uh, the value of money can just buy the same things uh, so if there is no demand for the money beyond whatever you have for your goods uh, any increase of it is just, you know, reflective of, uh, yeah, the purchasing power doesn't change. Literally, it's just figures. Uh, that is how you got those those uh, banana money. I don't know if that's what it's called from the times of, you know, Japan. But yeah, just like Venezuelan yeah. inflation, you know, the, the Argentinian inflation we've seen, it is the same. So if no one else wants your money apart from your own people, then the demand is restricted. So you're increasing supply without increasing demand. And what happens is that, yeah, the value of the money goes down. Mm. Value of money goes down means inflation goes up. So, 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 yeah, I mean, by inflation going up, the value of money goes down. That is why as long as people want your money, you can print it. Mm. But if people don't have faith, you know, don't want your money or don't have faith in your government to be able to repay it in time, you can't do it uh, and that is why the ability to control money and what the u.s the u.s has now is just a tremendous amount of power that no real government i believe personally should have you should not be recorded you're saying that people believe in usd because they they, they believe in the power of yeah, it's a global superpower right so i mean they don't believe the u.s can default but that to me, when SMP downgraded US government from AAA to AA plus, that has never happened in the history. Moody's, Fitch, and SMP are the three credit uh, agency firms, right? Credit rating firms. And yeah, if you look at SMP and SMP, at least you know in terms of what usually is expected in the market, SMP has quite stringent and it is viewed like you know one note, the top of the tree almost um, slightly, slightly preferred beyond the other mm-hmm. two. And yeah, they are rating US at AA plus. If a country can be downgraded, something like the US, uh, then yeah. And governments across history of you know humankind have always failed. It's just a matter of how long. Uh, no government has lasted more than, you know, I don't know, probably the longest could be a millennia, maybe not even a thousand years. But yeah, and when the government mm-hmm. fails, the currency loses its its the faith of the currency, right? It's no longer backed by gold and whatever. That's the problem of Argentina, that's the problem of Venezuela and um, yeah, it's Probably it's a matter of when rather than if, really. Yeah, yeah. I have a question before you repeat. So I had a conversation, wrap my, my head around it, but I couldn't, when we could have passed a little bit. So it's about, I asked him, uh, does Malaysia um, ever consider issuing their own digital currency? And then he said that mm-hmm. one of the concern was they were worried that the demand for the digital MYR would be higher than the paper MYR. But then I don't really understand what that means. Maybe you can um, explain to us in simpler terms. Okay, I mean, I've not. I, I mean, I can think about it now. I've not thought about it extensively before. But just uh, based on my understanding, okay, now it doesn't matter whether there's a digital or physical form of ringgit because you know both of them have the same value. But when you allow markets to decide what, you know, the value of this, if it is publicly traded, uh, you know, at the moment, yeah, you can only consider like FX, right? And yeah, there is no dual form of ringgit that exists, but there are currencies Mm -hmm. where there are two different forms. You have 
like CNH and CNY. So you have onshore and offshore Chinese renminbi, and you have onshore and offshore uh, uh, even Indian rupees. I'm, pretty, I'm not sure about rupees, but yeah, China definitely has it. So, and you can see if your currency has two different valuations, uh, uh, yeah, that's what happens if people holding this physical ringgit, you know, suddenly, you know, it loses half the value, whatever, it's not as valuable as people who are all holding physical currency will feel like, yeah, they don't want to, you know, they will try to get rid of it as much as possible. So yeah, suddenly this whole currency crumbles. And if you're not uh, careful, yeah, that, that shift of wealth could be so, yeah, you, you can imagine a scenario yeah. where someone had a million ringgit, you know, in, you know, under the mattress, or whatever, and suddenly, you know, overnight within a week, a month, suddenly that had no value. You can imagine a political revolution coming into play, you know, suddenly a shift of, if you watch Mr. Robot, uh, you know, that's what he sort of wanted to do, right? I mean, uh, he wanted to reset the, I mean, at least that economy, that globe, that, that world he was living in. I don't know if it was actually the US. I'm pretty sure they had a different name for the country in there. But yeah, resetting the world. But who decides who should reset the world, right? And Bitcoin is the closest thing to a natural progression of how a people-based money currency can work. You can get into that deeper, but referring to your question, it is where one of your currencies where it has been established for so long can suddenly lose its value without you wanting it to lose the value. If it was part of an elaborate plan to do so, then it's fine, but it has to be carefully calibrated. It has to be carefully planned uh, to ensure that there is no unfair transfer of wealth happening that people don't understand, you know, uh, happening behind the scenes, yeah. Right. Cool. So, uh, I guess before we move to the next question, I would like mm -hmm. to give uh, uh, a little bit of brief to, to the audience as well. So, we know that Bitcoin, the origin of Bitcoin, was like created because of the aftermath of the financial crisis because of the reason why we know that because even the genesis, the first uh, part of Bitcoin. I mean, dude, that it, it was it was before that. I'm pretty sure. Uh, okay, the timeline is a bit blurry, of course. You know, not knowing exactly who Nakamoto is. So you know, exactly. could be a person, it could be a group of people, it could just be one of Zabo, whoever. You know, they just didn't want to be branded as Nakamoto because yeah, if you have a million Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you will be chased after. For I mean, you will fear your safety, whatever. Right? You lose your public. <laughs> you don't want to be you lose to your private life. Yep, yep, yep. But yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just saying yeah. that I believe that actually it goes before. It's just that it became public. The person, uh, entity, whoever made it public, because that was when it would have caught fire. When faith in the traditional platforms and the government was at its lowest. And yeah, it has never been as low as it was after the, 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 the crisis. But I guess Bitcoin kind of blows up because the, the narrative of the financial crisis. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. definitely. That definitely made it explode. Yep, yep. The, the, yeah, from the, that block saying that the con the Congress is trying to give a second mm -hmm. bill and people are kind of upset and they see that Bitcoin could be the savior of humanity. So, I guess my, my question is that now the banks, most of the central banks are thinking about uh, issuing their own uh, digital currency in blockchain. Do you think that it is a form of innovation or is it just a reaction from Bitcoin to keep their status as 
to keep their relevancy in you know society as a mediator. It, it is it is reaction. I mean, it is pretty clear. Right? Ten years after, like, you know, if you really want innovation, you should have done it ten years ago. You know, <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to use something that does not just depend on IBAN Swift, where you know. I mean, clearly, right, of course, there are good sanctions globally, right, okay, so they are clear, whoever, whatever, but, I mean, perpetrators of, uh, I mean, like, uh, violence of, of, you know, unfair practices globally, uh, sanctions work because you have a control centralized mechanism like IBAN, like SWIFT. Mm -hmm. But it could also be the other way, right, where you have dictator, you know, dictatorships, very unfair, I, I mean, very uh, crooked governments leading and, I mean, controlling the flows of money where humanitarian support cannot flow into the country because yeah, it cannot flow until it goes through these banks, which are controlled by the government, or at least the government knows everything. Uh, so, and that is the appeal, right? I mean, of course, and as anything, any tool in the world, it can be used for good or bad. And mm -hmm. that is the case here. You know, you can use blockchain for good. You can use it for, for, because the problem of inclusion where, you know, if a person, if the bank doesn't believe maintaining the account for a person whose, you know, net worth or expected value for the bank is so low that yeah, we don't, we shouldn't bet, you know, because you are not worth the one to, Excel spreadsheet lines, you know, that the bit that yeah, us spending to maintain that bit of information is more than whatever we believe we can derive from the value of you putting in money or not putting in money, like, you know, that doesn't exist. It, it is a trustless, it does not judge people. It is a system that has no judgments on people. Uh, and that is the appeal, you know, the financial inclusion aspect, the part where you don't have to trust because Bitcoin, you, you know, it, that paper, that nine-page paper, solves the Byzantine general problem, right? And what happened was, for the first time in history, you could have a trustless network to transfer money around the world at in almost instant speed, almost free, you know, without having an entity to control it. And the best, the the real article that converted me into a believer, really, you know, okay, even when my professor was talking about it, I wasn't really a believer and what this could be. But after graduating, it was this particular article called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati. He was one of the earliest uh, engineers in Google. Uh, in 2002, I think he started working in Google. And, and yeah, this is, it's a 36-page paper if you download, you know, take out from the Medium article into PDF. But if you read that, you'll understand. Uh, yeah, I mean, he mentioned that Nakamoto was likely the first entity that should have won with one nine-page paper both the Nobel Prize in Economics and the Turing Award for, for computing. And yeah, I sort of believe that is true. It is exceptional. It is truly groundbreaking what was done in that you know, nine-page paper. Yeah. Um, so just now you, you mentioned that it's definitely a reaction to a reaction. You know, yeah, yeah, Bitcoin. Because yeah. they're not doing because... anything new on top, right? I mean, you compare CBDCs yes. with Ethereum. <laughs> Ethereum is an innovation, yes. Not not CBDC, mm -hmm. not in its what current forms that you know the Bank of England. They were the first to propose what could have been a feasible CBDC in Canada, did it, China, Venezuela, Singapore. But yeah, there's no real when, when was that? When did um Bank of England was like twenty seventeen, if I'm not mistaken. Did, did, did you keep uh did the proposal? 
2017, around wow. So that's pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was as a proposal. No one has launched. So, no one um, has launched a full blown, uh, centrally backed digital currency as yet. So, yeah. so just now you you mentioned that um, because due to systems such as IBAN, um, come countries or mainly the US can um, can put sanctions on on their enemies per mm-hmm, se. Mm-hmm. And then uh, some countries are using this cryptocurrency as a way to bypass that. And um, from what I read so far, but of course I, I don't know how, how, how true is that. So far the country that is seriously um, approaching this CBDC as a whole is China. And because I, I think currencies are political, by nature, yep. so mm-hmm. you think that you no, know, we've talked such as when currencies um, are by the government, yes, they are political in nature, yeah. yes. <laughs> and do you think because you no, know, so now there's a lot of talk on on digital yuan and also the the current devaluation of the US dollar. Do you mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. there'll be a new cold war or like a new frontier for this kind of uh, you know struggles between the, the US? And I mean, China or of course that exists, right? That exists. I mean, China does want people to use the renminbi. They want it to be. I mean, it's already part of the SDR. I'm sure. Maybe they want it to be a bigger part of the special depository rights, uh, the the basket of currencies that form the SDR in the IMF, uh, for example. Uh, but but yeah, it is political because the very definition of a currency of fiat currency is you know a currency that has value because of the faith and credit of a government. So, so it is purely political still currency, of course. It's just that U.S. had the added benefit of, you know, where currently the whole world accepts it pretty much. Uh, and that is why they could go all gung-ho in terms of quantitative easing, you know, for COVID, especially, you know, whatever we saw for uh, uh, 2008 was nothing. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the number is like seven, 800 billion for the, the GFC. But yeah, we've already seen 1.5, 1.6 billion worth of, quantitative easing happening for COVID. Uh, and they mentioned, mm-hmm. right, from March, I'm pretty sure, March or, or April. Trillion. Like, I think it was trillion. Trillion, trillion, trillion. 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 1.6 trillion, yes, yes. Um, and yeah, they said they will do whatever it takes to support, you know, the economy, right? But what is the economy? What is the part that is supported here? Because when interest rate is so low, this money that goes into the market goes into it generally, like, you know, uh, where, I mean, generally accepted inflation, you know, uh, hedges uh, or, you know, in, things which will retain value, real assets or real assets equivalent. And that is, you know, property. Property is a bit difficult because, yeah, you know, people couldn't pay rent and whatnot. But yeah, stocks, that's how the stock market simply just boomed right last year because this money has to end up somewhere. And you're not going to put it in a bank account because, yeah, you're getting at the current low interest rate environment. You know, it's not. So the money has to go somewhere. And you're not really going to spend, you can't really spend on holidays. You can't, and, and yeah, in this times of uh, distress, you're not really going to go splurge it beyond your necessities to survive, right? So where does the money go? Yeah, the money goes to stocks, right? So I mean, yeah, stocks and Bitcoin, you know, things like this. Bitcoin just exploded. But the, these are the reasons why the stock market, high risk, Asset classes has you know they have boomed I mean, over the past year, even though with COVID. But it is quite a disattachment between the real economy and the financial markets now. Yeah. But they are political in nature, so they are political whether or not you know it is the basis of a cold war. I mean, it, it is a form of a competition. Yeah, it is a form of a cold war. Yes, mm-hmm. you can say so. 
but ultimately, if Bitcoin is to prevail, and this just makes it all the more appealing, right? Rather than having to choose the US or China, you go for something neutral. And Bitcoin is that neutral. I mean, like, you know, some governments own more Bitcoin than others. China has 65% of the mining power. US only has like uh, but 7% But to say that uh, Bitcoin yeah. is neutral yeah. and not political, it's also not true in a sense, right? Because Bitcoin in itself carries its own ideology. Um, so you could argue Bitcoin also... It's, it's not political in the general sense of supporting a government. But yes, there are political ideologies that are attached, you know, uh, to, to, to the functioning of Bitcoin, of course. There are real clear debates within the community. That's how you have the splits, right? The fork <laughs> into Bitcoin, Bitcoin yeah. cash. So yeah, the ideology... Differences are real. You're absolutely right. So, yeah. Do you think Bitcoin, the prevailing? Uh, I think when I see Bitcoin, it feels like they they move towards to libertarian ideology. Yes, yes, would, yes. Would yes. It that? is more libertarian in general. It's just the world is sort of. It's hard to say, right? I mean, in some sense, people are a lot more divisive, uh, you know, a lot more fanatical. That's how you see the rise of these right-wing governments in Europe and whatnot. Countries you never expected such uh, parties to gain traction are, right? I mean, like Hungary and whatnot. So. But, um, I mean, uh, libertarian is the basis of. But, yeah, when you think about how people are sort of globalizing in the sense of, you know, the... the, the convergence of aspirations the convergence of like you know what we want there is a conversion before this if you couldn't see the world you have different aspirations but if you see things on whatever right instagram facebook you see what supposedly is the, the, the good life or what is supposed the supposed successful life there is a convergence in those things and the internet needs a monetary base, uh, whether that's USD, whether because all these currencies did not innovate, right? And just being a CBDC as what is currently proposed, it is not good enough to really power up into, you know, the what is necessary for IoT, for example. Okay, I, I can think of, I'm not sure if this is already, if someone is already developing it, but you can think of some very simple application of Ethereum, right? Where now you can just transfer to an Ethereum account and because of the interoperability between different functions, you know, Ethereum can, it is the base for decentralized lending for, for, for you know, tokenization of uh, attention, for example. So you can imagine even Airbnb, for example, uh, someone transferring money to an account, you reach a certain amount, immediately you get sent a code, which is the, to unlock the, you know, the, the lock to get the key, right? So, all these things could be automated. You can't quite do that now because banks control that, you know, that, mm -hmm. that monetary component, right? Um, you can have some form of API, probably, maybe, but Ethereum and all is going to make it a lot cheaper, a lot more decentralized. You know, you are not, the bank cannot cut off that transaction. No one can cut off that transaction. Uh, it is simply a mechanism that works. Uh, there are problems to that, but there, there's an appeal to that as well. And it will appeal more to the libertarian people who don't like inefficiency, people who don't like control, do not like, you know, knowing that there is some form of normative judgment determining what is right or wrong, because you can have the wrong people determining that. So, yeah. I've heard a lot that you're, you're talking about Ethereum as well. Are you like into Ethereum public blockchain as well, into the ecosystem? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I did not finish the whole, I mean, I don't know how many pages. I think if you really extract that whole website, it's about 100 pages or something. It is a lot more technical in nature. But 
the part that I have read, probably about half of it, that was enough to convince me that, you know, this is really the real thing that can change the functionings of a lot more industries. Bitcoin will change how uh, people perceive of storage or value or even possibly transaction. But, you know, when you can only process six, seven transactions per second, Visa is processing 20,000 transactions per second. Bitcoin currently mm. as it is, just does not have the capacity to be the transactionary medium of the world. That is why just because of the current scalability and it is not really, they can change, you know, they can change the megabytes, you know, they can increase the block size if they want, but then we go to the ideology differences and, and yeah, mm-hmm. these ideological differences are very, very difficult. So just because of these in, uh, inertia problems of Bitcoin, it will likely be a liquidity currency. It will likely be more of a store of value rather than actual transactionary medium. I agree that too. I don't know, because me and Ayman, we are really into Ethereum right now because I personally kind of believe in the decentralized finance world. Where yes, you, yes, 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 yes. This definitely is the big part of it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I find it really interesting. And you have all yeah. sorts of projects. Yeah, you have all sorts yeah. of projects building on it, right? You have Ave, you have Compound, Compound. I mean, yeah. it's almost a LIBOR. Yeah, that's a lot, you need elements of the current traditional system. You need a you know interbank equivalent operate between large entities. You know lending mechanisms. Uh, even mm-hmm. if it is decentralized, yeah, you need some equivalent almost of the current traditional system to really have a fully functioning financial system. It is not just a transaction uh, mechanism, right? You have these repo market equivalents. You have these uh, asset LIBOR market equivalents that you need to create. To really have a fully functioning alternative yeah. financial system, yeah, and they are being created. Yeah. They are being created. If to... you just look at the whole DeFi movement, yeah, is is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I talked to Rafiq uh, yesterday about uh, decentralized mm-hmm. finance or or DeFi because the uh, price of Ethereum also um, uh, exploded as well. It has made um, yes, yes, yes. the use of it quite prohibitive, especially the gas fee and stuff. Um, and yes, I, yes, yes. I I asked Rafiq, you no. Know, it could be possible that uh, decentralized finance is outpacing Ethereum. And there are a lot of um, other Ethereum killer blockchains coming up as well. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think um, what what interesting is you see a first market mover advantage at play here, even, even with Bitcoin. Yeah, okay. So now that we're moving that, because I thought we we're going to talk about more into decentralized finance. And my, my next question will be more into decentralized finance, anyways. Mm-hmm. So now that we know that as a, the creation of Bitcoin, also Ethereum, I believe they already created a new ecosystem that we just discussed just now, which is decentralized finance, where everyone mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a new ecosystem for financial um, transaction instruments. Everyone can create a new financial instruments, and it depends on the market to decide what has value and what is not. So do you think in the future, will there be like a dual economy, like a decentralized finance economy and also an economy that is controlled by banks that have mediators? What will happen in the future moving forward from what we have right now? That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, yeah, I mean, very good question, of course. But if you really think about it, even with the creation of like lending club, you know, crowdfunding platforms and whatnot, so, Many of these things, of course, it is still based on currencies which are controlled by the government. But in terms of the functioning of how 
people get services, get lending, you know, get financial services in general, you already have pretty, you know, dualistic structures to it. You have the government, you know, I mean, equivalent of social security, you know, safety nets, uh, healthcare, whatever. Uh, but yeah, more and more banks, you know, largest insurance firms do no longer control these markets, right? You already have players. Uh, even if they were not utilizing blockchain, these things already existed. So, uh, yeah, th there will be a dual structure, yes. Uh, whether or not one will usurp the other, you know, overthrow the other, it is hard to say because governments still have a lot of control, right? Because ultimately regulations, uh, yeah, it kills stuff, right? That's how Ripple is almost killed just because, yeah, the SEC declared it. You know, something as, I mean, Ripple was basically the third most powerful of, you know, after Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, just because yeah, of yeah. this ruling, you know, it went down you know, from 70 cents, 20 cents. Yeah, whatever it exploded up, it went down again, right? So, and mm -hmm. regulation is powerful. As long as people are bounded by regulations, and I do believe, you know, as much as possible, government, I mean, people should, there has to be some form of regulation. If you really just go mm -hmm. all anarchic, you know, all libertarian, no, we don't have to succumb to any regulations yeah so i do believe there has to be some form of governance mechanism but to what degree that should be is the question here and there has to be some form of regulation because if you really just go the very end of the spectrum that yeah all chaos breaks loose honestly uh, that is where you have someone like you know uh, the irobot uh, character triggering something like that so so, so no, right? There, there is value in regulation. There is value in order, and and yeah. So just because of that, likely yeah, you will have a dual system coexisting. Uh, but the degree to which government it may just be, you know, to the point where it is mainly just about very basic regulations. Uh, it is no longer going to dictate most of these, because yeah, governments cannot technically control Bitcoin. I mean, unless they say owning Bitcoin is you know, illegal, right? Uh, yeah, if they go there, but they know there is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, but what is the right mm -hmm. for you to say that, right? Because that can, just by doing that, you can do the exact reverse, right? Reverse psychology. Yeah. That is when people know <laughs> we need, everyone needs to use Bitcoin at this point. Because, yeah, I mean, the yeah. government is coming up with a regulation which makes no sense, right? So, so, so yeah. Um, so the, yeah, the world structure is likely what, what, what we are going to, it's sort of already, forms of it is already what we already have now, but it will likely be more and more prevalent as uh, these things proliferate. Yeah. yeah, but it's really hard though, to try to figure out what, what type of, you know, order that you want to put in something that's really... Yes, 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 yes. Um, it is hard to see, but Bitcoin is over 10 years old now, right? 10, 11 years. Yeah. Fiat money really is just about 45 years. It's not that far off, you know, mm, it's yeah. almost the age, the age of Bitcoin is already a quarter-ish of, of the fiat money world order that happened when gold was the, you know, DPEG, I mean, USD was DPEG from gold. So in terms of age, the longer Bitcoin exists as it is, the harder it would be to really hack the system. You know, the, the is the problem called again where yeah, people just try to rewrite the whole structure. If you come up with some form of supercomputer that overwrites all prior, you know, uh, 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 blockchains, uh, 
there, there is, I mean, it's basically the kryptonite of, of the system. If someone hacks it in the sense that you have enough computing power to override all prior calculations, I think it is the 50% attack or something. Yeah. The 51% attack, I think. The 51% attack, yes, yes, yes. That, that, that is the name of it, yeah. But the longer it is, the harder it would be to do it. So yeah, the longer Bitcoin survives, uh, the harder it would be for it to fail, yeah. In in your uh, working environment now, uh, in in World Bank, do you guys talk about um, CBDC or do you guys talk about Bitcoin? Has that ever come up in your conversation? Not, Either, not, yeah. not, I wouldn't say not on a formal basis. Of course, mm-hmm. people who are in the World Bank, you know, there are enough people, I mean, from all sorts of backgrounds across the world, from all sorts of, you know, professional careers. So, yeah, you, you definitely have. The, the, the blockchain enthusiasts who will come from all sorts of the political spectrum and you know within even uh, uh, the, the blockchain space. But the focus was more on uh, the issuance of a bond on a blockchain. So that is something World Bank already did. Because currently there's underwriting fees that you know you pay to investment banks and whatnot. So do they really deserve a percentage of because if you really think about it, what is an issuance of a bond, right? So you create a security, mm-hmm. you have the prospectus, but many of these prospectuses really are just boilerplate, right? You just change the name, the value, you know, who is issuing, who is buying, you know, uh, mm-hmm. what the underlying bonds might be if it's a mortgage back, you know, it's an, if it's an asset back security. But um, no, should you really pay a percentage? Should you really pay... One percent, or you know, the, the fees are not one percent. It's closer to point one percent. But let's just assume it's one percent fee for a billion bucks. So you know, you're paying that ten million dollars. Should you really pay that? So, you know, whether it's a one billion bond, if it's a ten dollar bond, the amount of effort is almost the same. Should it be a percentage or should it really be a fixed fee? When it comes to a blockchain, it is a fixed fee, right? Whether you transfer a billion worth of Bitcoin, you transfer you know ten cents worth of Bitcoin, the gas fee, the transaction fee. Yeah, is is literally basically the same. I mean, there is no percentage base, and it is these percentages that makes it so expensive to do many of these things now. When you want to list a company IPO, it is a percentage. It's always a percentage based fee that you pay. When a percentage based structure does not really make sense, it is the same amount of effort whether you're issuing a billion or it is you know ten dollars, a hundred dollars, or something. So I think we are approaching our last uh, our last question, Hazim. Okay, Hazim, maybe you can share a little bit um, on what's your general thought on on cryptocurrency, regardless of this Bitcoin or CBDC. Do you think yes, yes, yes. we are heading that way, or do you think it's still gonna be a while? Okay, I mean, I'm gonna. Uh, uh, Right. The, the real article that changed my view was that Vijay Boyapati bullish case for Bitcoin article. So I'm going to share some parts of that uh, combined with my views um, yeah, about the future of money, I suppose. So as I said, right, across millennia, across the history of humankind, yeah, we've really had like two main versions of money. Before the fiat paper version, you know, it was the shell, I mean, shell form of money, whatever that had value in particular communities around the world. Then they sort of in the 19th century agreed that gold, you know, had universal value. Then yeah, trade exploded in the 19th century, century because of that. So, and you move to paper. Paper is a lot more, you know, durable. I mean, not, not really dur- more durable than uh, gold per se, but it is a lot more portable, right? It's a lot more divisible. 
yeah, yeah. So it fulfills a lot more of what makes uh, the characteristics of a good money. Yeah. But yeah, Bitcoin is the third version. It's some form, so whether it's Bitcoin or some form of other iteration of it, you know, this is the future of money. It is just, it is programmable money. It is money that, you know, literally is innovated on continuously. It's open source. You can continuously improve on the money. And that is what we need to really move forward to fulfill the example of a transaction that is almost fully automated. Yeah where you really just you transferring the money, you get immediately the code to get the keys to your apartment. It could be, you know, that unlocks a drone that sends the key to you, whatever, right? But all these things could be automated only if you use a version of money and enter operable uh, blockchain like Ethereum, for example. And um, I know, I mean, it is hard to understand why Bitcoin has value and whatnot. Yeah, you know, it is not backed, at least even fiat currencies, like, you know, ringgit, whatever, it is backed by some central bank reserves, right? There is some form of uh, asset that is trying to maintain the value. Yeah, if it shifts too much, you know, you will try to meddle in the market, buying, selling to ensure that it doesn't go beyond a certain expected range of volatility of the currency, yeah. But Bitcoin is a monetary good. It is a nature of monetary good to be inflationary. Yeah. And as this is in the article to really get to the bottom of it. Yeah, people will need to read that article. But um, the basis of a monetary good is that it has to be inflationary. And the simple mm -hmm. example that I can quote here is uh, the, the monetary equation right, of money. So what is one equation that you could use to sort of try to value Bitcoin? Uh, so the equation that, you know, uh, defines monetary theory, monetary structure is the Irving Fisher equation. And that is MV equals to PT. And it is a, a very, I mean, the formula makes sense. I'll try to simplify as much as possible for everyone learning who may not have, you know, listening to this, who may not have an economics background per se. It is just MV, so money supply times the velocity of money, how many times that money changes hands, has to be equal to PT, the uh, price of this, you know, transaction times the volume of transactions. So the money changing hands should be the value of the goods changing hands, you know, I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? That, that is basically what this equation. So let's assume here where MV is just Bitcoin and PT is the global GDP, for example, the whole transaction that happens in the world, right? Value adding transactions in the world. So the global GDP is about 90 trillion and MV here, velocity of money, you know, roughly is generally 1.5, but because you have digital money, it should flow a lot more frequently, you know? So the higher that number is, the lower, I mean, the more conservative you are basically in terms of what is the value of money. So you go and you divide 90 billion by three, you know, you get 30 billion. You divide, so what is M? What is the value of money here? The number of Bitcoin times the value of Bitcoin. You divide by the 20 million, so you get roughly about 1.5 million bucks per Bitcoin. That has, that is, I'm not saying that is the value of Bitcoin. I'm saying that has to be the value of Bitcoin to facilitate the whole global transaction. Because if Bitcoin does not have that value, it cannot facilitate the global transaction. Mm -hmm. Then you take a percentage, right? Take a percentage. Let's say Bitcoin only is used for 1% of the global transaction. That already means just from a transactionary value of Bitcoin, it is worth 15,000 just because of its function to be able to facilitate 1% of the global transaction. Of course, that is one demand for money. You have this speculative, which is, you know, 90, 95%, maybe even 99% where Bitcoin now derives value. And you have the precautionary value, I mean, demand for money. You save money 
for future use, you know, for emergencies and whatnot. But these are the three types of demands for money. And uh, yeah, because of the fixed supply of Bitcoin, it makes sense. Money, the reason like you know, when governments can just print money, ultimately it is inflationary in nature. And the figure I got, you know, in terms of money supply growth just this year because of, you know, especially because of COVID, yeah, the US dollar monetary supply, the M0 money supply of US dollar went up by almost 40%. You know, at the point up to June this year, it was up by 55, 57%. That is crazy, right? Of course, the reason, yeah, we didn't have a 50% inflation in USD is because, yeah, there was enough demand. It didn't go into things that, you know, like uh, where inflation is calculated, right? The basket of goods upon which most inflation is calculated is based on what people buy, it's uh, user goods and whatnot. Most of this money went into stocks, which are not calculated, which is not calculated in inflation, but it is inflation, it's just in a different sense. Inflation in the form of stock valuation. But that cannot happen with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's growth over this period, yeah, was literally just like two, three percent, right? And it's only gonna go down. You know what the inflation of Bitcoin is gonna be from the number of Bitcoin perspective until it ends in twenty one forty, right? When all Bitcoins have been mined. Uh but yeah, so I'm saying that there are models, there are actual academic models now. They do not apply directly to what bitcoin is but there is a way to make sense behind all this chaos and what i would suggest people to do is to read up in terms of you know not be hung up on just the price movements of bitcoin because honestly to me that is the most the least interesting part of what this whole you know movement propaganda whatever it is right this whole revolution it is more about the philosophy of what this might mean you know it is more about the the social inclusion the ability for people who have never never gotten access to a credit score, for example. Suddenly, yeah, if you didn't have access to a bank, you never had credit history, you couldn't really take loans. And yeah, you couldn't escape, you know, your 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 situations of life. But this is offering an opportunity, you know, a separate, uh, because yeah, if across decades, these things just couldn't change, you know, banks will never bank the unbankable, for example. That is how you have these microfinance initiatives happening, but they were not really tech backed, technology backed, which could do it in scale uh, efficiently. But yeah, this is the technology that is allowing it to be done in that manner. So, so yeah, definitely read up more on it. And that is yeah. going back full circle to the first part of how I got interested in it is because my professor just said, read on it, come up with your own view, just don't be swayed, whatever, you know, because if you get swayed by the movement of the market, you're not looking at the reason, not the why, it is just the what, right, it is a movement of price, but you need to look at the why this matters, so, yeah. True, true. I guess because that's one of the reasons why I got into blockchain as well, uh, because I start reading on stuff, especially the projects yeah. on uh, I, the price movement is good because it gets people interested. Yeah. But yeah, don't get hung up there. It, it is a necessary yeah. like you know marketing mechanism almost to get people to want to read on it to know more mm -hmm. about it. Honestly, but yeah, don't stop there. Go deeper. Go deeper once you have enough interest uh, 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 on the space to know more. Yeah, it's, it's I guess it's one of the reasons why I don't really like to talk about uh, the price of the tokens uh, to everyone because every time you try to talk about um, the price. It feels like yeah. the the overall potential of that. It tag. is a very superficial, very superficial. Kind of superficial. Yeah. 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 That's what we have. Very narrow discussion. 
Yeah, you know. We have this kind of discussion in this podcast because like yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. That there's more to Bitcoin, there's more to Ethereum than just the movement of price. Because like even in Ethereum, they are doing even like other blockchain, they are doing the democratization of web hosting like IPFS, Python, Filecoin. I like that idea where you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. normal laptop to be hosting someone's web across the world and then you get that's what we need to have this more discussion for everyone to know uh, I guess yes, that's yes, yes. what we thank have you for <laughs> thank you Azim <laughs> thank you very much for giving us your thoughts and opinion about this stuff we really insights and I believe everyone that will be listening to this thing will appreciate this conversation as well and we hope that everyone will understand why the great minds of people in blockchains really pursue on this path rather than try to being disillusioned or disbelief in this tech yeah yeah and thanks thanks for inviting me you know this was a good opportunity to to delve back into some of these things that you know i've thought about prior like you know but refreshing the knowledge and the belief and yeah the, i mean just getting to know what the latest updates are and cbdc which is i suppose the main topic here today still uh yeah i, I mean it is a phenomenon that it will continue to happen you know, banks will try to do it but whether or not they will succeed yeah uh yeah it's something we will we shall see we'll see in the future what will happen <laughs> yes 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 Thank you so much, Azim. All right. Thank you.